And if you miss us live, check us out on SplendingNews.com, Spreaker, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date on the latest political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host Shane Stranahan coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. We've been having this conversation over the past week or so over China, Taiwan, and the United States, and basically whether the United States is willing to go to a larger-scale war in order to protect Taiwan. Um, and that seems to be the angle that this is being going. I mean, there's been the strategic ambiguity issue, basically Yes, it's a one-China policy. By the same token, we're going to arm Taiwan to the teeth in order to create kind of a bulwark against same China. Uh, we're also going to get into other deals, even with AUKUS, meaning Australia and the UK. Again, all of this stuff aimed at China. And there was a recent article that we mentioned the other day, Congress must untie Biden's hands on Taiwan, which basically the point of the article is we need to get far more belligerent and more boisterous in regards to defending Taiwan against China. I'm very curious on whether our current guest believes this is still just a grift or if these guys are arming for something more kinetic. To have a conversation, we're joined with Carl Jha. Carl Jha is host of Silk and Steel podcast focused on China and surrounding regions and their history, culture, and politics. Carl, how's it going, my man? Hey, Walk. Uh, thank you for uh, for inviting me back to your show. Absolutely. I mean, you are an expert on this stuff, and so we always appreciate your take. Um, I'm curious, last time we had you on the show, you were making the point of saying you would hope that cooler heads prevail on this, that this comes across as more of a grift than something that is getting more kinetic. Um, I I am not sure about that. <laughs> this feels to be a little bit more than just a grift. And just the language that is coming out from these guys, um, it's somewhat worrying. I mean, the reports and everything else from the previous, I would say, week or so, is basically, oh, China is flying their warships into their ADIZ zone. And when you look at it, it's like, dude, half of that zone is over China. <laughs> this is nonsense. But again, for the American audience and the way this stuff is cut in this kind of propagandistic way, they don't know that. That's not being fully explained, that this is basically over Chinese own airspace. This is not over Taiwan. And that they basically unilaterally created this kind of little zone, what they're calling their own um, identification zone. I mean, going further to that, even like this particular article from the Washington Post, where they're basically arguing, yeah, we need to untie Biden's hands, meaning we need to give the president more powers to be imperialists in order to make certain decisions on basically going to war with China in order to defend Taiwan. Um, Look, I think the most reasonable or, or question that hasn't been asked, how many dead Americans are we willing to lose for the defense of Taiwan? And that's the question that hasn't necessarily been answered. But I'm going to go to you. Do you think that this is still just a grift? Or do you think these guys are indeed basically planning for a war that they think will have to be fought at some point? And if they needs to be fought now, that they have some level of an advantage now that they wouldn't necessarily have later? What are your thoughts? Okay. So when we're talking about these guys, we have to know who we're talking about, right? So just like China, U.S. government is not a monolith. And in fact... You you have to look at the, the latest action and provocation in the broader context. Uh, for example, the the Chinese uh, flight into so-called incursion into so-called Taiwan's ADIA zone that was a response to the U.S. Uh, 
huge U.S. armada consists of four aircraft carrier strike group sailing just south of Taiwan uh, between the Bashi Channel between Taiwan and, and Philippines into South China Sea. So, but, you know, the, me, the overwhelming media coverage on the so-called Chinese PLA aircraft incursion of Taiwan ADIA zone totally overshadowed the other story, which is, you know, U.S. is sending a huge force into South China Sea. Oh, even why, freedom why of navigation doing stuff. That, right? I mean, the, even that language. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And, and well, so why? Why is it? But if you read, uh, you know, the Biden administration um, actually is trying to climb down in the the confrontation rhetoric with China. I don't know if you noticed uh, back in October 6, Biden, during the call with uh, Xi Jinping, Biden said United States will abide by the Taiwan agreement. Now, mm-hmm. most people think he's referring to the one China policy, which was stated in the Shanghai communique in 1972 when uh, Nixon visited China, which stated that uh, United States recognize or oh, there's only one China and the PRC is a sole legitimate government of China. Now, that uh, and and on the, in addition to that, Biden is now sending uh, his trade ambassadors to have trade talks with China. While Biden is doing this, um, there are other other factions within the U.S. government. I would like to say the the national security establishment clearly do not want to see the tension ease. That's why we're seeing the huge armada being uh, sailing into South China Sea. Um, all these uh, all these uh, fear mongering stories in the media about Chinese military aircraft invading Taiwan airspace, and then that crazy Washington Post editorial, which calls for. Uh, basically, give the enable the president to to declare war unilaterally mm-hmm. uh, without without going through the Congress. And I think this is you know you have to look what our people's interests are. I mean, clearly, you know the the the, the Pentagon and the military industrial complex were would very much like to continue the tension with China because that's. That's a trillion dollar. There's a trillion dollar defense budget at stake here. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, oh, go ahead. I'm we sorry. Do see, we, I, I'm sorry. Uh, but we do see that you know Biden is not completely on board. Biden actually pulled out of Afghanistan over the objection of the military top grass. That has been reported now. So I, I'm actually optimistic. I'm actually optimistic that Biden is not going to uh, let the Pentagon steer the U.S. foreign policy in this very important issue of uh, China-U.S. relations. Uh, and I think what we're seeing, uh, all the crazy talks of war, is just a reaction uh, just because some some sector of the U.S. government do not like to see the, a climb down from the from the escalating tensions. This is my my two cents. No, I understand. That makes sense. That basically these are factions, just like in every other country, and you have maybe a more militaristic fashion or hardline fashion that in no way wants to back away from this. Whereas Biden, maybe softer on this particular front. Shane. Well, I mean, another side of this, going back to Eisenhower with the military industrial complex, <clears throat> it would be 
partly that it's this insidious force that doesn't necessarily take everything over, but has its own incentives, wants its own things, and can intervene and countermand and override, you know, the, the State Department, the executive branch in these, in these, in some of these cases, of course. But the, the concern I have, you know, Biden, like you were saying, Carl, has held back, pulled us out of Afghanistan, did that in his own bumbling way uh, against the recommendations of the military establishment and all the credit to him for, for that part of it. But say a president comes in, a, a Republican president comes in 2024, both parties, the base of both parties seems to be ratcheting things up with China. And I'm not, not at all sure that in a couple of years, cooler heads will stop prevailing on this one and they might start to move in. But, you know, specifically from the right or a, a, a more hawkish Democrat. What's your take on that, Carl? Um, if if Trump wins 2024, all bets are off. I mean, yeah. like, because we, we all know that's, it's just going to, if Trump wins the presidency, it's going to be a reboot. And Trump is just unpredictable. We we don't know what he will do. Uh, all bets are off. I, 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 it's, it's, it's hazardous to predict the future. But uh, you are right. If a Republican uh, assume office, especially if it's, it's Trump assuming office, who knows what, what, what will come our way? Well, there was also the story about the CIA setting up um, a new center for intel, basically, specifically on China. I mean, we're basically talking about troops now in Taiwan, or at the very least some element of our intel services or military basically in Taiwan. I mean, this stuff does seem to be ratcheting up even under Biden. I mean, is it just Biden lacks the authority, which, you know, or lacks the will, I should say, to assert that authority to be more um, specific in pulling or backing away? I mean, when Biden was engaged in the meeting with Putin, it seemed that the whole point of that was, okay, this is getting out of control. We need to bring the, the hysteria. On the China issue, though, he seems to have less control over this. I mean, they're still having the freedom of navigation movements. And like you pointed out once before, China's response to this is a response. It is not a, you know, um, it's not a pretext. Basically, you have all of these weapons being given to Taiwan. You have all of this rhetoric going into it. And what is China to do in this other than having military exercises in order to prepare themselves in case there's more provocation from the U.S.? I mean, that's the way I frame it. I mean, is there something wrong in that framing um, in the way that I'm no, thinking about no, it? No, not at all. In fact, uh, the U.S. US uh, military posture in, in East Asia started in the Obama years, during the first term of Obama years, under the term pivot to mm-hmm. Asia. Pivot. And the so-called pivot to Asia, if you look at its content, it's not economics. It's all primarily military. And and what we're seeing today is that basically U.S. is finally drawing down its uh, war on terror operation, which occupied it for the last 20 years, and now is trying to refocus on great power competition with China. Now, uh, I say refocus is because just before 9-11, even back in, 20, in 2001, there was a very tense moment between U.S. and China during the Hainan uh, Hainan spy plane incident when, uh, again, it's, that's when Donald Rumsfeld authorized increased frequency of flight of U.S. spy planes to buzz Chinese coast. And la- that led to a collision of a U.S. spy plane with a, with a, US, with a Chinese fighter, fighter jet. Mm-hmm. And that ended up having this, uh, the U.S. spy plane landed on the island of Hainan. There was a lot of tensions back then but that eventually fizzled because of 
not because United States dis voluntarily decide to 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 down to down dial down the tension with China. Oh, we get distracted but it's because U.S. Yeah. Exactly because U.S. national security establishment got distracted by by its involvement by its invasion illegal invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan and and now we're seeing finally the the, the great after the withdrawal from Afghanistan the great war on terror is drawing to a close and now the U.S. military establishment needs another uh, needs another rationale to to justify their existence on the trillion dollar budget and, and China just serves a perfect foil for that purpose Th that that's my view well that's well that's part of it but the, of course the other side of this i would i think you know you're looking at this from the military industrial complex sort of angle grift that kind of thing but it also seems like there is a kind of conflict of economic world orders in different modes of doing things so for inter in international investors the chinese government the way that they handle their business increasingly as, as it's being revealed is they're having to sort of get harder on some of these entities in some of these cases. I say having to, but, you know, of course, it's always optional. You know, a lot of people around the world don't necessarily want that or like that, want to do things that way. And so a lot of people are betting on the U.S. and betting on that that kind of old order. From from my American standpoint, I just don't like the imperialism that comes along with it, like the free trade, the specific ec economic and legal institutions that we've set up the world around and that we're having to prop up with our military at the detriment of mostly non-american lives you know at, at the cost of mostly non-american lives i don't like it from that angle but there does seem to be some legitimate competition between sort of how the economy how the world economy is going to work whether it's going to be these ostensibly impartial international institutions that manage it or whether individual nations are going to directly assert themselves more strongly right now the united states has played this weird game where it's like simultaneously the biggest man in the room and likes to act like, oh, we just like, we just want everybody to get along that kind of, we're just trying to help everybody <laughs> come to some agreement on these things. And we care about human rights. And on the other hand, we, di we directly intervene militarily, uh, you know, for specific purposes. But I would argue those are, for, those are for the benefit of keeping certain economic arrangements in place, keeping certain people in power and, and you know, acquiring wealth. And that a shift out of that mode would be to the detriment of certain classes in the world economy right now. In other words, there's like an actual genuine shifting of who's in power and not just inside the military industrial complex. What's your take on that, Carl? Oh, definitely. I mean, the big difference between 2001 China and 2021 China is that China is vastly more uh, powerful, both economically and militarily. And, you know, the what back in 2001, I mean, nobody has heard of any giant Chinese companies. I mean, like maybe somebody has, some people have heard of Huawei back in 2001, but back then there's, there was no TikTok, obviously. And uh, back then there was no, uh, 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 what is that? That, that, that there's no, that what's that drone, um, that, that, that commercial drone company, uh, DJI. Yeah. There's, there's nothing like that. Like the drone and, company you're thinking of, right? Yeah. Yeah. DJI. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yep. And, but the, right. But, um, back, Back then, uh, the U.S. business actually wanted to rush to China to do business in China, to take advantage of Chinese cheap labors and to get into the Chinese market. You are absolutely right. Now that the table has turned out, the rise of China actually challenged not the just the U.S. military hegemony, but also uh, the, the, the U.S. hegemony over the global finance and global trade. 
And now the U.S. companies, especially big tech companies, if we look at our S&P 500, it's weighed very heavily toward the big tech companies like Facebook, um, Google, Tesla. Uh, well, Tesla is still doing good business in China, but Facebook and Google, they're, they're, they have no game. They have no, no skin in the game in China at all because they're not, they're, they're, they're not in China. And, but these companies, for them, uh, China do, does present a challenge uh, because China is uh, behind their firewall, is building their own giant tech companies. Uh, now, now Tencent um, with its WeChat app and, and then even Alibaba. Right. And so well, and just briefly, the, sorry, Carl, briefly on Tencent, a connection. We've talked about the Epic versus Apple Games lawsuit in the States, big sort of antitrust lawsuit, kind of not exactly antitrust, but basically, you know, the rights of Apple with its app to be able to charge app fees. Fortnite. Anyway, Tencent, massive investor in Epic Games. I'm familiar with Tencent, massive, like, in, you know, investor in American companies and American tech companies and specifically in the game market. Right. Yep, definitely. So, yep. um, Go ahead. So no, no, no. Please. You had a question about that? No, no. Sorry. Sorry about that. No, I was just adding on oh, to that. I'm trying, trying to connect dots for an American context. audience, that kind of thing. Very Carl. Right. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yes. Um, so right now, um, whereas back in 2001, in U.S., there was at least balance between the pro-engagement camp and the pro-containment camp. The, the military complex, industrial complex has always been pro-containment camp. But at least back then, there was a pro-engagement camp, uh, you know, mostly consisted of U.S. businesses. That that side has been demolished in the most recent years. Uh, you know, there's no longer any opposition to the pro-containment camp of the of the U.S. military because now the U.S. business increasingly seen the, their Chinese counterpart as competition competitors. You know, uh, competitors that that's ready to eat our lunch, so to speak. And, and that is why now the, the, the conversation around China in U.S. is so lopsided. Back then, you know, back in 2001, it's still, there's still somewhat of a balance between the two sides. Now it's, it's the, the pro-containment pro camp pretty much taken over all the U.S. Uh, political landscape. And, and that, that's why we're talking about this today. Uh, but, but I think... Um, it's definitely uh, many people are worried about this because uh, they don't know what the future holds. They they have been used to uh, you know prospering under uh, a U.S. built framework since World War II, basically with with the U.S. at top controlling the world global finance trade um, with enforced backed by the U.S. military and and now it's in China and they. And, and that's a big unknown, right? And uh, for, for people, uh, that's why I think there's a lot of, lot of fear of China actually arise from this fear of unknown. Um, and at least U.S. is like the devil we know, right? And <laughs> we, we, we don't, we don't, we're not, especially for Americans, we don't really, really understand China. We don't really understand what's going on there. And, and so we don't really understand what, a China-dominated world order would even look like, um, and at this point, uh, you know the, the the fear on the U.S. side, the fear of losing hegemony. I think that's definitely a big motivating factor, and there's a there's also a thinking on the military planners on the U.S. side that uh, 
U.S. only have a small, limited time window to contain the rise of China yep. for yep. good. Because after 10, 15 years, uh, I mean, maybe even 5, 10 years, China, so China's trajectory would basically reach escaping velocity. And U.S. will no longer be able to contain China, even if it wanted to, because back, you know, in 20... In 2040, you, you, Chinese economy will be many, you know, will be many times bigger than the U.S. economy, and 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 at that time, U.S. even if U.S. wanted to contain China, it would it would be mission impossible. So the idea is better do it now while we have a very small, limited window, and that is why you're seeing more provocation on the U.S. side. And and Taiwan is seen as the a wedge issue. It, it's one one place where uh, U.S. with its still overwhelming superiority in in naval power can still put a stop to China's rise. And I think that's, that's, a, that's the thinking among a lot of the so-called strategic thinkers among the U.S. Uh, national security establishment. Do you think but they're hopefully, right? Do you think they're right, though? Well, because, because that's we, we've had that conversation and there's a you know there's an element in which it sounds completely reasonable there your economies the chinese economy seems to certainly be doing better than the american economy leadership's making wiser decisions when it comes to managing things like trade and productivity i, I mean i'm speaking just industrially almost in a, a purely statistical sense being able to produce more goods that kind of a thing efficiencies like that we, much better than us and it seems like you know you're doing that at a faster rate so isn't that a warranted fear on American intelligence's partner, military's part, Carl. Well, it's uh, it's it's correct that probably in twenty years, U.S. will not be able to contain China if they wanted to. Um, now, whether that U.S. need to contain China, that's a whole different question, right? I mean, that does China? Because right now, people from the representing the military industrial side is re representing China as an existential threat. Mm -hmm. To the American system, to U.S. itself, um, I don't, I don't, I don't see it that way. Um, because right now, first of all, China is promoting not a, a China is not proposing to replace U.S. as a, as the a, a, a hyperpower that that dominate the world trade. At least so far, China is proposing a multipolar world that that world with with multiple poles of great powers. You know, China. U.S., Russia, Iran, that that are regional power its own in its own region. Uh, I, I don't see China is trying to replace the U.S. Um, system, the U.S. empire system across the globe. And and what China has done, the Belt and Road Initiative, based based on its record in the last ten years. There's a lot of trade deals being accomplished. There's a lot of infrastructure being built. Uh, there's criticism of so-called Chinese debt trap diplomacy, but I don't see any Chinese uh, Chinese fleet sailing into the ports and forcing governments to pay up or yeah. or giving up their <laughs> sovereignty. So, yeah. I you know obviously, what I'm saying is Chinese system is operates very differently from the U.S. system, and I don't I don't necessarily see. Um, how China is doing is going to present an existential threat to the United States, at least not to the to the average Americans living in U.S. It might pre 
represent an existential threat to the U.S. empire because that means U.S. will lose its global hegemony. But that's, that's an international. Um, that's an international. The thing that where I would land on this one, coming back to the thing, is you know China. The the interests that the American military industrial complex is fighting for, the CIA is fighting for, are not those are not, not American interests. Whether they're big businesses based in America or international investors or whatever, whatever combination of interest or an international elite that will simultaneously go to Yale and Exeter, whatever, those kinds of things. This is a crowd of people who are not necessarily reserving their, you know, their, their sense of responsibility primarily for American needs, that kind of thing. We've got to close this out. Carl, thank you for joining us this morning. Really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me again. Really appreciate you being willing to do so, uh, to come on. I mean, Carl Zha, for those listening, the host of the Silk and Steel podcast focused on China and surrounding regions and their history, culture, and politics. You can follow Carl on Twitter at Carl Zha. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Steel Silk N and subscribe to support the podcast at patreon.com slash silk and steel. You're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Stranahan. We're going into our hour break, coming back in a minute with headlines and another two hours of this morning's show. We'll be right back. to Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And in the independent corner, I'm your political analyst, Shane Stranahan. That would imply, insist strongly, that you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Stranahan. Shout out to Carl Jaffa coming in and having that conversation. Like you said, that's probably going to be a talk we're going to be having more often. Um, there's, in fact... There's this thing from Chinese media that came out the other day where it basically warns the U.S. defending Taiwan will be a death blow to American soldiers. Um, basically saying that the United States is not going to be willing to fight to the death with mainland China or the island. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, you know, if the United States thinks that it's existential. And, and that's, the, I think, the point that sometimes Carl, well, I don't know, U.S. perspective, it is. Only because 
anything where we're not, our military policy is full spectrum dominance. And if anything is inhibiting that based on economic might, based on a potential military might, even for that matter, if these kind of militaristic relationships, it basically challenges the primacy of the, the policy, military policy, meaning it puts us at odds with all these other countries just from those countries wanting to be sovereign within their own right. And so who knows uh, if they think and they get into their heads, we need to fight this war now as opposed to fighting it later because we want to maintain primacy over the globe. Yeah, that could be disastrous. It can be. Can I, can I add a couple of real quick points here? Go for it. Thanks. One, another thing that goes on here, and I know this because I know people like families and you say, and they're like, you know, neocons and they're broadly would advocate for going to war with China. And there's an interesting side of this. These aren't people who are like, you know, they don't work for Northrop Grumman, but their families associated with DC and the DC military mm -hmm. establishment. So I get it. People in the audience probably aren't going to like them, but good people. I know them. Um, and th genuinely guilt tripped into being like, well, we said we'd support Taiwan. We got to do it. It's like I, they would quote Aristotle. I remember it. This idea that if, if you've taken on a responsibility, you, you know, if you've if you've helped somebody who's asked you for help and you've decided to help them, yeah. you've taken on a responsibility for them that implies a commitment, an obligation that you need to carry out, or else you're you know you're undercutting yourself, that kind of thing. And so guilt tripped, guilt tripping themselves, being guilt tripped. I, I would argue. Simply, a lot of money, a lot yeah, of money, money whether, it's, in, whether yeah. it's inside the MIC or whether, again, it's the, uh, investors who want to know what the U.S. is doing so they can make the right investments, yeah. minimize uncertainty, or big business that wants to do, et cetera. You know, keeping the system going. The existential risk isn't to America as such. It's to the quote-unquote American system, which is exactly. really an international system, is my point, yeah. that is guilt-tripping America <laughs> into doing its business for it. Yeah. Uh, as far as I can tell, anyway, another quick thing I wanted to add on this. Uh, from some Americans. I mean, some are true believers in the whole geopolitical dominance yeah. and that type of stuff. Most, yeah. are, are most aren't, I don't think. I think that most people will, you know, most people don't really have deeply strong opinions. They just kind of watch and occasionally will respond to this stuff. But I think that China understands the U.S. better than we understand China to a T, partly because they had to imitate us. They've, they've, you know, with our relationship with them for the last 40 years or whatever, 40 plus years, it's been them selectively imitating aspects of our economy, of our culture, of our values, those kinds of things. And uh, we don't really do the same with them. And what comes with that is that they understand us a lot better than we understand them, I think. I think countries that are in a weaker position have to play the position that much more precise. Um, and they have to have a clear analysis of what's taking place just because their position is going to be more fraught, just because they're at some level of a disadvantage. Yeah. And if we're talking about like China or Russia or some of these other countries going for the last 20, 30, 40 years, then yeah. I mean, the competence is not um, a feat above, it's a feature, it's a necessity just for their own, you know, political survival, just for their own sovereignty and everything else. Um, we, I don't know, it's like being in a dominant position for so long, it's almost like we've taken it out of the ball that we've gotten lazy in pursuit of this kind of managing all of this stuff and we just kind of assume we won whatever that means in regards to a global system that just perpetuates itself through time. Um, yeah, it's whether it's they just know us better just because they've had to study us so intently, whether it's they know us better just because they've had to make those competent, rational decisions in order to maintain their station. And whereas the U.S. had far more leeway to make screw-ups, make mistakes and that type of stuff where they just didn't necessarily have this stuff available to them. I don't know. But um, this is somewhat worrying. And I do get, you know, there is, we were willing to end the world over Cuba. And this is basically the exact same situation in reverse, where we are giving tons and tons and tons of weapons and at some point establishing some level of 
of, of um, nuclear, uh, nuclear yeah, present potential yeah, presence. Yeah. And then the question becomes, honestly, even for those people who are trying to guilt trip or being guilt tripping into it, how many dead Americans are you willing to accept in order to keep Taiwan? Um, and, you know, as, as some kind of independent actor and lose in pursuit of that because Taiwan is on the border of China, not on the border of Kentucky, meaning all of the armaments, all of the assets, they're not fighting this kind of um, kinetic expansionary war where they have to get equipped. They're already there. And so it's like, you know, this stuff is, is fraught with all sorts of weirdness and everything else. And yeah, the question becomes, how many dead Americans are you willing to go with in order to protect Taiwan? Um, I, for me, that number is zero. Number zero. Let's get to the headlines, though.